hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast ever. I'm going to venture to say it's your favorite podcast ever because Cece and I also feel like, you know, we enjoy spending our Thursday mornings with you guys as well. So thank you so much for for tuning in once again. We are letting you know also we have listened to everyone's feedback. There's there's been a lot of feedback on the internet about our podcast, which is always good for us to have lots of conversations about our content and and how everybody's connecting with it. And so we've, we've been listening. We've been listening to the feedback. And so we've kind of come to this consensus where we're going to revert back to some of our previous methods for listener enjoyment because everybody seemed to really enjoy when Cece and I would do the query critiques, which we completely understand. You know, we are the agent experts here. And so that makes perfect sense to us. So we are going to be doing 
the tr- more traditional books with hooks formats moving forward where Cece and I are doing the critiques. We will have a guest on now and again. We will have authors back on in terms of the authors who are submitting their materials to books with hooks back on once again. So just stay tuned. We're going to keep you on your toes a little bit, but rest assured we are reverting back to some of our for- former methods because we know how important that was to everybody. So thanks for sticking with us through all of our lovely growing pains. We love being here and, and thank you guys for being so engaged with what we do. Thank you, Carly, for that excellent introduction. Everyone, did you pick up on that curiosity seed she just planted? Stay tuned. There will be more. For now, Carly, will you kick us off with your first query letter? Thank you, Carly, Cece, and Bianca for the shit no one tells you about writing. Even grumbling when one of the gems you drop sends me back to my manuscript for yet another tweak or rewrite, I am grateful for your generous gifts of knowledge and time. Having gained so much from your advice to other writers, I would appreciate your help with my query in opening pages. First, though, a special thank you to Bianca for your terrific beta reader matches. Yay, Bianca! Okay, here's the query letter. Dear Carly, I notice you represent several books that champion women and their journey, so I'm hoping that you'll be interested in Act of Trust, 80k word, historical women's fiction. A woman counts on fending off depression by successfully administering a stranger's estate and mysterious last wish, but lands in precarious personal territory when old letters ambush her heart. Acts of Trust is for readers who enjoy dual timelines that converge at resolution, like Rice Bowen's The Venice Sketchbook and Fiona Davis's The Magnolia Palace. Fans of Zara and Mary Ellen Taylor's The Words We Whisper will root for Harry Mallon. Emotionally floundering after divorce and her mom's death, 54-year-old Harry is determined to start 2013 right by moving forward. She will accept the job of trustee for Eleanor Harmon's estate and resolve a suspicious end-of-life beneficiary change involving the woman's caregiver. Harry loves solving mysteries, and here's a real one. Perfect. Although she never met Eleanor, has no legal experience, and her psychic sister is predicting danger, Harry engages a lawyer and plows ahead. She interviews and investigates gathering information from as far back as 1950s Hollywood, but Eleanor's final wishes remain an enigma. Time runs short when beneficiary sees control, preparing to settle, without hidden letters written to Eleanor by a friend in the 1940s while he serves in the RCAF and U.S. Army Air Force, Harry will fail. Finding the letters, however, adds love to the equation and how Harry proceeds could begin to heal or finally break her. I have administered several trusts, the strangest being my first, which inspired Harry's. I also supervised caregivers for many years, meeting women who influenced the story. While acts of trust is fiction, historical material and the epistolary sections comes from real letters. Before turning to novels, I wrote books and lyrics for an award-winning family musical. Following are the first five pages. Please let me know if I may send you the full manuscript. Thank you for your consideration. Toby G. Bernstein. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And what was the word count on that? And any notes on the letter for the writer? This one came in at 333 words. The author neatly summarized it for me there. Thank you. All right. So the first thing that always jumps out at me, which you guys know at this point, is the title, right? I'm always like, is this the right title? Is this grabbing me? Is this interesting? I think this one, I think it's it's trying to come off like a little bit of a pun, like trust is in, you know, the trust, the estate, like that sort of thing. But to me, it potentially sounds like nonfiction. So I would probably have some other titles at my sleeve just in case an agent asks. I really stumbled. I'd like to tell you guys when I stumble, because even though we re-record things so you don't hear me stumbling all the time, I want to tell you when I'm stumbling because I do stumble. And so I stumbled with a woman counts 
on fending off depression. So this like on off, it was a very strange wordplay here, the on and then the off. So I would just kind of pay attention to that a little bit there. It also sounded like you were working so hard to make the stakes real and clear. I could feel like you were very intentional about trying to pick them out, but I still feel fuzzy on this. Like, number one, this idea of like her wanting to get out of this depression. So that is an assumption. You know, not everybody, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like what this character doesn't want to wallow in, you know, these low mood, this low mood. She wants to get out of this depression, but you know, why, right? Like, again, there has to be a why to everything. And I feel like you were trying so hard to get at the why, but you know, why does she want to pull herself out of this? You know, usually there has to be some kind of energy we're moving towards, but so why this estate? She doesn't have any connection to this estate. And obviously this is part of the mystery of the book. But in terms of a query letter and potential that cover copy, I don't know what is it about this estate that is going to lift her mood. This is still very unclear. Even though you're trying, I can see that you're trying. It still isn't clear. The year. So we have 2013. Sometimes when things jump around in terms of time and place, I feel like there is a bit of an intentionality with like something like 2013 so that it can be the person could still be alive at this time who is going through something like World War II. So I, I did feel like maybe we were forcing the the timeline a little bit to kind of work. So I would just really make it clear about why it has to be 2013 because it is somewhat you know, it, it is contemporary in the sense that it's not the 1980s, but it's not 2023, right? This is 10 years ago. So why is this 10 years ago? I always wonder about those choices. So in terms of this person, right, this Eleanor Harmon's estate, I really am curious, and I think I need to know in the query letter, how does she know this person? That That is a big question mark for me. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I do think an agent who is looking for something in this category is going to be interested in this. I think you have enough going on here. I think I'm just stumbling and I'm just probably just not the right agent for this one. Thank you for that assessment, Carly. And now please tell us what happens on those first five pages and your thoughts on the opening. All right. So we start with Friday afternoon, February 22nd, 2013, Los Angeles, California. Very specific. So we start with our character, Harry. She is seems like she's like in her driveway kind of you know in her front yard that type of thing there's a lawyer in the driveway in their car kind of talking about this whole estate thing and and trying to hand this off to her and he's trying to drive away and she's like please leave like in her mind in terms of all the interiority so she like jumps up and down when she leaves because she's just like so excited this guy leaves and so she understands you know there is a bit of a mystery kind of here that she's going to be engaged with this estate then she starts to have some questions about like who is this person like she's more excited about the estate first and then she's like oh who is this person and then we move into the past with chapter two february 11th 1940 new york city and dearest ellie and then we go into a letter to eleanor Harmon, who is the person whose estate we are going to be unpacking and what did you think about those pages so i really liked the first paragraph this like interiority of her being like this lawyer is in my driveway i want him to leave it was it was very fast and so i really liked that you know he says i wouldn't blame you for saying no you know think about it he backs out of the driveway and then she does something which i think is very strange she says she thrusts a fist into the air her exuberant yes echoing through the hollywood hills i'm like would a real person do that? Like put a fist in the air and shout yes at a, like in your front yard in the Hollywood Hills. I don't know. I just felt like 
is this a real person? So that was my first little like, hmm, the order of events in this character's mind to me potentially aren't in order because she isn't like, who is Eleanor? We don't, she doesn't start to wonder who is Eleanor until much later. Like to me, that'd be the first thing. The lawyer would leave and then she'd be like, who is Eleanor? You know, like, why would I be this person? Not, I'm going to thrust my fist up in the air and say like, yes, this lawyer left. Not like, oh, I'm excited to do this mystery. And then I'll wonder about who Eleanor is. Like to me, just the interiority order was was really off. So I would be completely reevaluating the natural order of that thought process. That would be important to me. And I mean, I think I think this person really tried hard also to make the opening really punchy, but I think that also came at the cost of making it really choppy. Because we're like, we meet the lawyer, we have this bit of interiority, then we go to this letter from 1940, but we have no connection to this character. I always struggle when I don't understand why we're spending time with this character. And first of all, I barely know our main character in the present. And now I'm already going into the past to read a letter about somebody I don't even know. And so that lost me a little bit. But again, I think this is just me in terms of my personal taste here. Thank you for that, Carly. All right, Cece, it's your turn. Read us your query letter. Let's do this. Dear Cece Lira, I chose to submit to you because of your interest in books centered around feminist issues, dysfunctional families, and strong female relationships. I have greatly appreciated the information I've learned from you and the rest of the shit team. After calling into the comp segment, I not only found an excellent comp for my book, but also my new favorite book. Thank you so much for all that you do. I am seeking representation for my debut novel, The Witch's Duel, at 92,000 words. It is a standalone urban fantasy with series potential. This book meets the deadly magical trials of an unkindness of magicians by Cat Howard and the fight for women's rights and the restoration of magic in The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow with the strong familial bonds, steamy romance, and modern-day urban setting of The X-Hex by Aaron Sterling. Beta readers reported that they couldn't put it down. They laughed, cried, and did everything in between. Camilla Lancaster thinks lacking the confidence to go for the job she really wants is her biggest problem. But when she recites what she assumed was a fake spell, she finds out just how wrong she really was. The spell unknowingly exposes her to the coven and the life her mother died running from 19 years earlier. And when her half-brother, Jude, discovers Cammie is still alive, he intends to kill her to continue to be the leader of their coven, a role that is rightfully hers. To prevent Jude from continuing to pursue her and her loved ones, she proposes a witch's duel, bonding Cammie and Jude's fates together forever. Now Cammie has one month to train with the handsome witch trainer, Leon Barker, to build her confidence and prepare for a magical duel that consists of three deadly challenges. She must win the duel, not only to save her own life, but to stop Jude and his father from wreaking havoc with their discriminatory and sexist laws against female witches. The same witches that help Cammie discover life outside of books is better with friends. And there are some people who are worth fighting for. When I am not working on my next book or reading at my local coffee shop, I am teaching my third grade class to become the writers of the future. Or I am at home, watching movies with my scruffy, one-eared cat, Jasper, and my husband. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. May I send you my full manuscript? Warmly, Katie Ortiz. Thank you, Cece. 
And what did you think about that query letter? And let us know how long it was. The writer provided us with the word count, 441 words. But that was her being very honorable because the first paragraph shouldn't even count since it was very specific to the podcast. So good on you. Okay. I do love everything you mentioned on the first line. I just want to say, in case there's someone out there wondering, does Cece really love feminist issues and dysfunctional families? Yes, Cece does. Cece does very much. I'm also so curious to know which of the comps you mentioned was the one that was discovered in our comp segment and became your new favorite book. Like, way to make me curious about that. Okay, let's focus on the plot paragraphs, which is always my obsession. I can map out the story. Story setup, she is lacking confidence. Inciting incident, she discovers she's a witch. Complication, her brother wants to kill her, so there's a duel. Ticking time tension, very clear. They have one month to train. So I can map this out, which is really good and shows that this query letter is strong. What I'm wondering though is, is there enough messiness? There seems to be a very clear good side, which is hers, and a very clear bad side, her brother. Like, how does it get complicated? How does it get messy? If she kills her brother, does something bad happen? Other than maybe her feeling sad, although I don't think she would because she's never met him. But, and as soon as she does, he's kind of a bad person. I feel like in stories with familial struggles, the messiness is kind of essential, at least for my taste. So I'm wondering, is there messiness? If so, can you kind of highlight it in the query letter? Because I would love to know. I feel like it would make this more juicy you are doing an excellent job of telling me what the story is about. So really what I'm suggesting is elevating it further. And I really love your author paragraph, your one-eared cat. That was really sweet. And overall, I enjoyed this. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. And let us know what was in those opening pages. Okay, so we have our protagonist, Cammy, arriving at the bookstore where her aunties work, and she works too. And she has bad news. She just came from an interview and the interview didn't go well. None of her interviews ever go well. And her aunties are excited when she walks in, but pretty soon they get sad because she tells them what happened. And her aunties comfort her and they ask her how it went. And a book somehow flies across the room and her auntie's like, probably it just slipped from my hand. But that was a little weird because, you know, her auntie wasn't anywhere near the book. And later when she's closing the store, which is her favorite time, she comes across a book of spells that just seems totally out of place. Like she's never seen it before, doesn't know what it's doing there. And there's a spell for a new adventure. And she's like, you know, my aunties are always telling me that I have to live a little and be adventurous and I can't live my life inside of books. So why not? I can't hurt to try, she whispers to her cat. And, you know, she she casts the spell or she reads from the spell and that's where we stop. So we don't know if the spell worked or not. Although, of course, we do because we read the query letter. Thank you, Cece. And what did you think of those pages? Okay. I want to start with what was working. What is working first? So right on the first page, we have her walking into the bookstore and she sees her two aunts whom she loves and they're excited for her. And then through her interiority, we read, hating that their excited expressions would soon fade into the all familiar looks of pity. And then one paragraph later, after her auntie comforts her and says, that's okay, that's okay. Again, her interiority, the words came out too fast to be genuine. These levels of observation are very well done. So this is excellent. She is a very pointed and acute observer. I appreciate that. I appreciate her perception. She is adding depth and layers to what her aunties are doing, to what's happening in the scene. So that's working really well. I also appreciated that we were always in scene. I was never confused about who was talking or anything like that. My concern, so it's two, two concerns really. One, when it came to her passion for the job, for the job she was interviewing for, 
I didn't believe it. And I didn't really understand how she failed at the interview. What we got was that she was anxious and like she always is. And because of that, anxiety got the best of her and she made a fool of herself. But I don't know how. And whenever she thinks about the interview, she thinks of it in very generic terms, very rounding up terms. There's a line that reads, today she made a fool of herself as her anxiety got the best of her. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I think she would remember something more specific. I think that she would remember the question that made her stumble. I'm also wondering how does her anxiety manifest itself? Does she interrupt people? Does she overshare? Does she go quiet and can't talk? Like there's so many ways that this could have played out this interview. And because this is fantasy, it's it's a very good place to start in the sense of a failed interview. Anyone can relate to that. Even if you've never actually failed in an interview, you feared failing in an interview. So that's very relatable, which is good for when you're going to have world building later to start with something relatable. So I am pro keeping the failed interview. I just think you have to specify it a little bit more, as well as her dream. Right now, her dream is to be an editor at a big publishing house. Like that is it. Like work working for a big publishing company as an editor. Again, like what what about dreams are specific. Dreams are very, very specific. And what about this is something that she really wanted. And then the second concern I have is there wasn't enough tension. She's arriving and she's sad. She's despondent. She's sad. She's almost a little bored, right? And her aunts are so adorable and so lovely. They comfort her. They give her attention. They give her cookies and milk for, for the cat. That's really sweet. And, you know, she's she's resigned. She's resigned to the fact that she doesn't know how to interview well and she won't get the job. And when her aunties tell her that she needs a life outside of books, she kind of goes, yeah, you know, I guess. And when she finds the book of spells, she's kind of like, can't hurt to try. So I guess what I'm getting at is that her feeling of like almost boredom, it can pass on to the reader and the reader can feel almost bored. Not because the story isn't about to get exciting. We know it will because we'll have read the back of the book, but it really does have to suck you in from the very beginning with something that's really interesting. And right now this is too peaceful is the word because it is sad. There are things happening. Her aunties are comforting her. She failed the interview, but it is on the peaceful side. And so I guess that I'm worried that that's not enough tension. So I would try to find a way to really, really up the tension. You might want to look into giving her active emotions because right now her emotions are just very sad and very passive. So something to think about. And if you love all of Cece's first five pages advice, because I know I'm always inspired by all of the interiority work that she does, we are teaching our writing the perfect first five pages webinar on Wednesday, the 27th of September, 8 p.m. We would love to see you guys there. It really is just the best of our first five pages advice. And on the podcast, we're often deconstructing from things that are in front of us. But during this webinar, we actually start with more forward momentum and telling you all of the best things to do from the very beginning. So please come tune in with us. You can find it on either of our websites. It's carlywaters.com slash webinars where you can sign up. We would love to see you so we can teach you all the best things you can do for your first five pages. Awesome, Carly. Now, will you please read us the query letter that we'll both critique? Because the third one, we told you there was a surprise coming. We're going to share the third one. We'll both share our thoughts on it. Dear Cece, since you enjoy love stories with a flawed, dysfunctional protagonist, I invite you to read Vita Eterna, a 116,000-word contemporary fantasy appealing to fans of Middle Game, The Night Circus, and WandaVision. When a boardy mortal queen falls for an idealistic rebel, she must modernize quickly or risk losing her comforts, her realm, and her last chance at a new beginning. 
Vita is the leader of a clandestine group of modern-day immortals able to channel light, a mysterious substance with healing and destructive capabilities. Once a warrior queen, Vita now cloisters herself in a hidden palace, bored with her long life. This complacency shatters when she discovers a modern outsider, Jack Driver, born with power equal to her own. News of Jack invigorates a growing resistance to Vita's rule, threatening the secret, fragile cohabitation of humans and immortals she's fought to achieve. Jack, a civil rights activist in New York, knows nothing about Vita or her covert world. His childhood encounters with members of her army, resulting in his father's death, lead him to believe his light was evil. In his final words to his father, he swore to forego magic and live a normal life, a promise he struggles to uphold. When Vita and Jack meet, they experience an intense attraction, drawn together by their unique powers. Needing him by her side to quell revolution, Vita urges him to embrace his light, becoming the god he's meant to be. But Jack refuses to join the army that's hounded him. In fact, the more rebels he meets, the more sympathetic he is to their cause. Maybe it's not the light that's corrupt after all. Perhaps the corruption lies inside the women he loves. A writer and producer of narrative games, I have been published in Memoir Magazine and Tulip Tree Review. Vita Eterna, my debut novel, plays top five in the gutsy great novelist page one prize. When I'm not writing, I enjoy playing tennis, hosting trivia competitions, and instilling a love of board games in my two children. Thank you. And what did you think of that query letter? I am so curious. All right. This one came in at 340 words. I I was pretty hooked by this one. I'll be honest. I thought the title was really interesting. You know, it suggests that kind of like Latin terminology, you know, like live forever. Uh, I, I really, I really liked that. I also really liked Night Circus. I think WandaVision's a really smart show. So I thought the, the framing here was, was quite interesting. The one thing I always struggle upon with stakes in kind of fantasy projects is, especially when we're talking about something immortal, I think about why, what is the catalyst when you have an immortal life? Like what is the catalyst? Like the catalyst has to be massive for something. And so this idea that she, you know, it says this immortal queen falls for an idealistic rebel. To me, it's like falls for sounds incredibly passive. So can we say like madly in love? Like, can we say something a bit more high energy to like get to really get her out of this kind of passive immortal existence like that that to me could be quite interesting i really like that this is our world i thought that was quite interesting with new york though i mean new york is a big place like are we talking about like brooklyn or queens or i don't know just the new york bit was a little bit it sounded a little bit like a placeholder to me i don't know if it's supposed to be a bit generalizing because or it could be like New York State. It wasn't even New York City. It was just like an activist in New York. I don't know. To me, that was just, it, it was a bit placeholder-y to me. I would figure out a way that like, could we get a little bit more specific there? Or I was thinking, even though it's our world, has it changed? And New York is not what we think it is, right? And so there's a lot of world building that has to do even in queries. So if this is our world, it makes it easier for our brain to understand because we can layer the fantasy on top of the existing world that we know. But just like New York, I don't know. I know it's a real place, obviously, but like it is a massive place and could mean many things to different people. So that was a note that I had. I really like the love story here. I, I really think I really think this is interesting. And I think there's a lot of interesting layers to this. So Cece, what did you think? I also loved The Night Circus. I feel like it's just one of those books that it doesn't matter if you're a high fantasy reader or not. You just fall in love with it. So that comp always catches my attention. I'll be honest, my brain kind of fixated on the modern, the use of the word modern, both in modern day immortal and then modern outsider. I'm like, what does that mean? Because if she's immortal, 
And and she says modernize quickly. Yeah, and I so there's like really multiple uses meant. of the and word modern. Like if this yeah. is our world and there's a secret world behind our world, you don't really need to say modern. And if she's immortal, then she's not like a modern day immortal. She's just immortal, right? Because she was around a thousand years ago, I suppose, 2000. I don't know. And I'm not trying to nitpick. It's more like because we read so many query letters, if a thing feels confusing, especially my brain, like it kind of obsesses about it. Like what does modern outsider mean as opposed to what? As opposed to a past outsider? As opposed to a, like what could it mean? So I'm, I genuinely don't know. And I would just rethink that word or clarify it. When it comes to the sentence that reads, news of Jack invigorates a growing resistance to Vita's rule. I was not aware that she was ruling anything like actively because the sentence before that just said that she was cloistered like in a hidden place. So, you know, I think it, this kind of actually touches on like Carly's, your point about the stakes because it's immortal. It's like, okay, so what is going to jolt a protagonist when they're around, they're always going to be around, you know, like what, what exactly is at risk? Stakes, stakes are all about what is at risk, what could be gained, what could be lost. And so it kind of finds it, I, I found it hard to really understand. This is a minor thing, by the way, the whole, like, what does she rule? Cause that's fine. I still would have kept on reading. I will say though, big picture, I did not think that this was Vita's story and the log line is is Vita. You know, the log line is focused on this bored immortal queen. Jack's storyline seems way more developed than Vita's, even though the log line is focused on Vita's. So all we know about Vita is that she's a queen and she's bored. So I don't know. I think I would, if this is dual point of view, which I'm assuming it is, like, is it? I don't know. I think make the story more about like equal parts, both of them. Because right now it's, it's feeling more about Jack, which is interesting because the pages do start with Jack's point of view. So maybe maybe we're onto something. All right. So in these opening pages, we start with Kansas 1872 as the timestamp. We meet Jack, you know, envision Kansas. He says he, they have a wagon stirring in the prairie's dust. So he's at his home with his parents. So we assume he's a child here. His ma and his pa, the who we know from the query letter, this kind of rebel army is showing up. They say kind of get the gun. Like they're quite confused about, you know, who these, who these people are. They get invited into the house and the leader of the army kind of just like repeats a couple sentences, which puts the parents to sleep in a kind of a meditative state. But Jack doesn't fall asleep, meaning like he doesn't fall for this kind of spell. Therefore, they understand that, you know, he is special and he has this capital L light thing that they're talking about. The rebel army is trying to figure out who Jack's parents are and his mom and pa say that they are the parents and everybody's a little bit confused. And Jack starts to clue all this together in terms of like, you know, that he does have powers and what are they for? And is he human? Is he not human? And this is where we end. Awesome, Carly. And what did you think of the pages? So I was I was pretty taken by these pages. I thought this was really, really interesting world building. One thing that threw me off is, again, the repetition of the word modern in the query letter. And then our timestamp is Kansas 1872. I'm like, if you're immortal, then yes, I suppose 1872 is relatively modern. But to, to anybody living now, like we obviously weren't alive then. So that was a bit of an interesting thing to me. So it was like, okay, we're going, we're clearly going back in time. And it, but if Jack is alive now, again we also are starting to clue together that he's immortal so it's a quite a sophisticated conceit here that this author is has created and and that they have to kind of teach the reader to understand in order to keep up with the plot so i understand like this is quite sophisticated what this author is trying to do and i think they did it really really well 
I thought there was some really good word choice. For example, um, you know, these, these, this kind of army, they say, they come in, they say, you must be Horace Driver. We've been hunting for you. And he pumped Pa's hand like a shake pump. I thought the word hunting was so interesting, right? Because like, that could be a joke, right? Somebody to say, hey, you know, we're hunting you down, you know, just looking for you. But we start to think, oh, hunting you, right? Oh, are you actually hunting us as like physically? Or are you just like looking for us? I thought that was a really interesting word choice, really well done to kind of set the tone for the hunting really that that was happening here. The magic at this point is quite subtle, but we can completely understand it, which is really grounding and helpful because you're going to want to attract readers who really understand fantasy novels and have no problem jumping into new worlds. But you also want to attract the reader who, again, the night circus reader who, even if you don't read high fantasy, you're going to want to jump into this world and spend time here. Okay. So I, I want to say that I really, really like the concept. And I also really like the fact that we're opening with action. We're opening with Jack, who is 14, right? Having these people come over and these people are like casting a spell on his parents. Like that's scary. And they want something out of him. And so that's a very interesting setup and kudos to the writer. From the very first paragraph, he observes the wagon coming and he knows that it's for him because, and this is a quote, No one came so far from town, and he was the only thing there that anyone considered special. This is a 14-year-old who is considered special. That informs someone's emotional makeup. That informs how someone relates to the world. That is going to be at play in every moment of his life. A little bit later on, we have Jack sharing how he has always dreamed of being on the paper. Because they say, you know, they they were there for the paper, for the local newspaper. And he's like, he could tell they're lying, but it was his dream to be in the paper. So he hoped that his intuition was wrong. Why am I bringing all this up? When you have a character who is defined from an early age as being special, we need that to be present in his interiority in a very, very specific way so that he can come to life and he can feel real. So for example, when they, the two strangers, look at Jack and say, this is the special boy. Like, no, he's not. They're super skeptical. He, I really wanted to know through his interiority if he was used to the skepticism or if if it was surprising to him. You know, no one had ever doubted that he was special before. And if it is common or it has happened before, does he enjoy showing people? Does he enjoy when people don't believe that he's special and then he can be like, actually, let me show you something. How he relates to these small interactions with more layers and more specificity, that's what I want here. That's at the heart of my note. He kept saying what whenever the strangers said something. Like I, I counted like three or four. The strangers would say something and he'd be like, what? And then more what? And there was no interiority following the what's. Like this is the 14-year-old boy. He's not that young anymore. He He's intelligent. He can process things. He knows he's special. He said it himself. So I wanted a little bit more depth, depth in his interiority because I feel like it's such a high stakes moment and he might be coming across as more childish than he actually is. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe he's, it's supposed to show his growth later. So I don't know. But I still would have liked to see, see more layers. All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you guys for tuning in and hanging out with us while we switch things up. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest's writing has appeared in a public space, The Sun, Max Sweeney's, Kenyan Review, the Pushcart Prize Anthology of 2015, and elsewhere. She has received grants, scholarships, and fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, McDowell Colony, Yaddo, Hedgebrook, and a public space where she was one of their 2018 Emerging Writers Fellows. She holds a PhD from the University of Texas at Dallas. Parish was her debut novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Latoya Watkins. Latoya, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. For our listeners, today we're going to be focusing a lot on Latoya's short story collection called Holla Child. It is just getting starred reviews everywhere. Everybody's raving about it. And, you know, for damn good reason, may I add. But before we get into that, Latoya, we would love to hear about your journey to publication, how you landed your agent, how um, long it took to sell Parish when you went out on submission, and just what that whole journey was like for you. All right. My road to publicate. I didn't go to an MFA program, a traditional MFA program. I think my first workshop ever was in grad school, though in my city, we don't have an MFA. I didn't know what an MFA was when I went back to grad school, but I knew I wanted to work on writing. So there were a few workshops that I took the first semester, and one of them was facilitated by Matt Bondurant, the writer of The Wettest County in the World, which went on to become, it was adapted to film Lawless. And one of the things, it was his first semester, first class at UTD, University of Texas at Dallas. And what he did was he gave us a lot of publishing advice. And he had just had the screen adaptation. It was like playing in the background as he was teaching us. And he talked a lot about publishing. There weren't very many of us in that class, but he talked a lot about publishing. And one of the things that he told us was that if we didn't feel, he talked about the query, querying agents, that process. And he told us that if we didn't feel comfortable or if we didn't want to do that, that there was another way to do it. And he was like, submit work, submit your work. And agents and editors read literary journals. And it sounded like far-fetched. It didn't even sound real to me, but I, I took that advice. And from that very first class with him, where I, when I was submitting work that I felt like I had no, well, he probably felt like I had no business submitting it because I was just learning to write, really. I started submitting it and I always had work out and it took probably maybe three years before I finally got an acceptance into a small online literary journal. And then from there, I received several acceptances. I published a short story in Ruminate Magazine in 2015, and it went on to win a Pushcart Prize. From that point, agents began to contact me. I started applying for things like Breadloaf, Swanee, those different things, started being able to go there and making other agent connections. They would, they have readings at Breadloaf and that's a good draw as well. People hearing you read your work. So I connected with a lot of agents without querying. Now, one of the things I ran into is that in the very beginning, I only wrote short stories. I didn't want to write a novel. I wanted to write short stories, but I didn't. One of the things that agents would ask me for when they wrote, they would ask for a novel. So there were a lot of misses because I didn't have a novel. So I sat down and started writing one. I took one of the longest short story, which was a novella <laughs> that I'd written and started writing a novel. After a while, I got full manuscript requests for that once I finished drafting that. And it's a really parish. My first novel is really a heavy book. So I was aware that I wasn't going to get a lot of yeses on that. 
but I did hire go with an agent in those early, early days. And what came out of that was that I realized what kind of agent I needed and what kind of agent I didn't. So we parted ways and I went back to an agent who had contacted me early on, but didn't want the novel. I had done several rewrites after my first agent and sent her one of the rewrites. And she was like, okay, we'll work on this together. Like, I I do want to represent you. She sent her little one page contract stating that. And we started the work on revising my novel. It took us, I think at the end of that, I had like 18 drafts. We did a lot of full rewrites on that. And then we were finally ready to go out in 2022. We were supposed to go out, I think, like in March. I'm not 2022, but 2020. And we all know what was going on in March of 2020. So we held back until April. And when we did submit, she did what she called a soft submission. And we didn't submit, just spray the world, spray editors with the submission, but it was crickets. Like we didn't hear anything. And she assured me, like, of course, I did the thing that they tell you don't do and started researching. What does it mean if I don't hear back when my book is out on submission? And I thought that it was just going to be a no sale, that it was a dead novel, that I was going to have to pack it up and put it away and start over. And she assured me that this had everything to do with the fact that we were in this new pandemic and people were scrambling. No one knew what was going on. So we just chilled out and watched the industry until September of 2020. So there was like this big span of time between me first going out on submission, getting crickets and no's to going out again. And I was kind of traumatized by, kind of felt rejected, like I needed to go back to the drawing board, maybe start all over grad school, roll it back and get an MFA. But when we sent out in 2020, this is post the George Floyd murder. This is post a lot of things. A lot of new things had come up and it wasn't the same experience. We got a lot of interest. I was actually able to get on the phone and talk to a lot of editors and it felt really good to be courted in that way. Not in a way that I felt like I was selling myself, but that they were trying to appeal to me. So from that time, September, it was around the 18th, mid-September, maybe. It was about, we were out for about two weeks before people were finishing because I sent two books. So it was the novel and a short story collection. So giving them time to read that, it was about two weeks before we started scheduling meetings. And from my first meeting to my last meeting, two days maybe before I made my decision and went with Tiny Rep. That is just incredible. I love hearing about unorthodox journeys to publication because, you know, writers have been told you have to first get the agent, then you do this. And when they can't and when it's difficult, it's so frustrating. So, you know, I love that there was this different route for you and that agents were the ones courting you. And I also love hearing about this happy ending, even after months of silence, because honestly, for our listeners, time becomes a completely different thing when you're out on submission. I swear it is like time slows down infinitesimally and you are just pressing refresh, refresh, refresh on your emails and checking your phone to hear from your agent and you hear nothing and oh my goodness, how you can get so up in your head about something. And then, you know, and I've said this to people before, I've read manuscripts where I've said, 
This is phenomenal. And just because it hasn't been accepted now doesn't mean it won't be accepted in a year's time or two years time when things change. And I love hearing that that's what happened for you, Latoya. Now, we also keep getting told how difficult it is to publish a short story collection. And that's all you wanted to publish. But then you had to write the damn novel so that they would publish your short story collection. So how did you get to that point where you like, okay, You've now published my novel. Will you publish my short stories? Or was the anthology out at the same time as the novel and the same publisher just took it on? About six months before we were to submit the novel, when we were ready, I was like, I think I have another book. Because one of the things that's important to me is, I don't know, as a writer, sometimes you feel like you're going to lose it. Like you're going to lose that ability to write. And I thought it was very important to continue writing stories while I was working on the novel. So I had all of these stories that I was always submitting. I didn't even know that my agent would submit them for me. (laughs) So I had all of these stories that I was always submitting. And I was like, instead of getting these stories published every time I finish one, maybe I should add them to my collection, create a collection because I started watching the publisher's market deals and I saw where people were selling a collection with a novel. So I brought it up to her and she was like, yeah, if you have a collection, send it over. So we just kind of bundled them and sent them out. And the editor, one of the reasons I went with Tiny Rep is because the the editor who acquired the works was just as interested in the collection as she was in the novel. And she had a pretty good justification for why she wanted to publish the novel first, because I thought we were going to publish the story collection first. That's what I wanted to do. That's That was my goal, is to was to publish short stories. And I had been publishing in journals, but I wanted a book so that I could reach more people. So we sold both the collection and the novel to the same house. And when we kind of signed the contract, there was a date on both of them, like when both of them would be published. And it was very important to me that those dates were kind of close because I had finished work, like both of them were complete. and. I wanted to be able to move on with my life as far as writing. And I knew that this was going to, like being on submission that whole time, I didn't write anything. That time, I think after February of 2020, 2020 to maybe February of 2021, like I didn't write anything. I was just kind of twiddling my thumbs, like what happens next? So it had taken a chunk out of my writing life and I wanted to move on from that. So I wanted for these things to be close so that I could be free to continue to create. And I think one of the things that I wanted was for the collection to go first, because that was what I was more confident in. But I'm glad we worked on the novel a little bit more. And I'm glad that I had that opportunity because it allowed me to fall in love with some of the things that I was doing there and with novel writing itself. So now I feel like I am a novelist and a short story writer. So it worked out. Yeah, and they're such different forms, and it's so difficult to go back and forth between the two, but, you know, you have done it so, so incredibly well. So for our listeners, Hollow Child is heavily rooted in West Texas, which is where LaToya grew up. The 11 fictional pieces focus on black lives. There's a huge range of people and relationships within it, and it forms a really profound collection about community, 
betrayal, home, what home is, homecoming, and forgiveness. Just, just incredible. Latoya, do you have your book with you? Because I would love for you to read us the first two pages, because what we speak about often on the podcast is voiciness when something is voicey and sometimes our listeners don't quite get it they're like what does it mean for something to be voicey and i read in each of these stories i mean latoya does virtually i think it's 11 first person narratives right there aren't any third person or was there a third person there are a couple of close third person yeah but they were so damn close that you made (laughs) them feel like first and it is so difficult to nail 11 different voices, which LaToya has done and made it look so damn easy. Please just read us the first two pages of the first story, just so that our listeners can get a sense of this voiciness. Sure. I'm going to be reading from the mother. The visits done died down a little bit now. When it first happened a week ago, all kind of reporters was camped out in my yard. Some still come, the rustlers, like this one sitting in front of me. They still ask about how about how he come to call himself the Messiah, about who his daddy is, but I ain't got nothing for him. I look out the window, I keep my chair pulled up next to, ain't no sun, just cold and still. Banjo lift his head up when he see my eyes on him, but it don't take him long to let it fall back on his paws. He done got his rope a little tangled up, can't move too much with it like that, but he can breathe and lay down. He all right, I'll go out and work the knot out when I can, when this gal leaves cold out there, but I ain't too worried about Banjo. He got natural insulation. I'm the one cold and I'm on the inside, supposed to be on the inside, because I'm a person. I ain't got no insulation, though. This old house ain't got none either. The window is rickety and wood frame. Whole house is. Whole house ain't no thicker, no stronger than a big old piece of plywood. Ain't nothing to separate me from the cold wind outside but the glass and the pain. This gal sitting there shivering like white folk ain't used to cold. Everybody, even me, know white folks makers of the cold. And this one here, white as the snow on the ground out there. Ain't no whole lot of snow. Not enough to stick. Keep these wandering folks like her out of my face. I wonder if she reached Abilene, if the snow reached Abilene, for Hawk and his white folks left life for good. Before he crucified himself and took all them people with him. I wonder if he left this world clean. Trees outside my window naked all the time, I say. And I pretend in my mind I was raised here, not on 34th. Just pretend I've been on the east side all along, on the east side, where good time horn didn't ever catch, even if being strung out on drugs did. Where snow come and cover up the dirt in places where grass don't never grow like icing covering up chocolate cake or brownies or anything dark and sweet. The east side, where you be happy poor and don't try to pretend you can fuck your way out. I just pretend in my mind I was brought up poor and wasn't never no whore. Goosebumps. Literal goosebumps. (laughs) So, okay, there's a lot that I want to break down here. But the first thing is let us talk about capturing a voice. Because I liken it to, I feel like writing in a way is kind of like being an actor. You have to step into this person, into this character who is not you. You've got to look out into the world from their brain, from their point of view, from their entire life experience. And that is how you need to tell the story. And you do it so sparsely with such, you don't give us all this backstory. You throw us into the middle of this character's life and we have to tread. As the readers, we are like treading to keep up with this, but we never feel lost. We immediately in the marrow of our bones, know these characters. How the heck do you do this, Latoya? How do you approach it? 
I'm glad that you likened it to acting because now I call it method writing. What I do is I actually do embody the characters. I go to the grocery store dressed as the characters would dress. I want to see how the world reacts to them and how they react to the world. And I didn't know that I was doing that until my husband pointed it out to me one day. We were having dinner with our children and I said something and he was like, no, no, I'm not talking to you. I want to talk to LaToya. I want to talk to my wife. Where's my wife? And I was like, what? What's happening here? And he's like, you you write these stories and you become these characters you're writing and like we lose you. And instead of, you know, taking that and being like, oh, okay, I won't do that anymore. I was like, that's it. That's what I will do. That's how I will make my characters rich and develop them. But there's also another thing that I've developed in recent years. I also was able, after much research and work, to find two therapists who are willing to kind of play this game with me, putting the characters on the couch and assessing them if needed, giving them therapy, characters so that I can understand what makes them more. I have a box, an index box in my office that has hundreds of index cards on it. And on those index cards, on some of them, probably about half of them are character biographies. So I am a people watcher. I think a lot of writers are. But when I see someone very interesting, all of my characters are rooted in someone out there who's real that I've seen and taken an interest in and wanted to create a life for. So I will write down like a, an identifier, like what they were wearing, what stood out, and then create a biography for that character and put them in the box. So when I run into a story idea, all I have to do is thumb through the box and find a character that fits. That is incredible, incredible advice. I've always said writers are like literary magpies. We go out into the world and we find these shiny things about people's personalities or perhaps a gesture that they have or the way they speak or whatever. And we kind of bring it back to our nest and we build it into our nest and and. You know, it feels like that's how you're doing it. And you create a whole lexicon and a way of speaking for each of your characters because they all have sort of, there's there's a cadence to their voices and they've got like literary texts, verbal texts that other characters don't have. So that's what made each voice so incredibly different in my mind. For the audiobook, did you have totally different narrators for each story or one narrator who read all of the stories or did you do it because I feel like you would have done a damn good job of it <laughs> I didn't do the any of the narration in the audiobook but I did get to choose I listened to a lot of audiobooks so I already had narrators in mind that I wanted and I was able to send them over to the producer and allow her to choose the narrators, choose the people who were available. But for some, there were some people that I wanted to read one, some people that I wanted to read two. I, I was able to kind of put them on the stories that I wanted them to be on. So that was that was a good experience. I think I'm going to go back now and listen to the audiobook again because I think it's going to enhance the reading even more. This time I got to highlight the beautiful sentences and phrases, but I think when you listen to it, you kind of 
experience a story in a different way. So I definitely think I want to go back and do that as well. You know, putting the character on the couch. Oh my God, I'm like made a note. Find a therapist who will do this for your characters. Because, you know, somebody like Lisa Cron in Story Genius has spoken about a character's misbelief. This thing that happens to them when they're quite young in their formative years that they believe about themselves or about the world, something that makes them supremely unlovable or that other people cannot be trusted and how this may not even find its way into a scene in a novel or a short story, but it informs so much of how this character thinks about the world and how they perceive other people to view them and the hurts of your characters. There was so much inherited trauma, like intergenerational inherited trauma, that I felt that there were things your characters were experiencing that probably came from like their grandmothers, you know, and and, and these that they developed into their cells through osmosis. Was that something that you were also trying to do? Or was it just something that you as a writer just just naturally did without necessarily paying attention to that? I don't I don't think that it was something that I set out to do, but I think when I come to the page, I know so so much about the character, what has created them, like even more than they do, right? Because I am able to be inside of the character and outside of the character at the same time. So I bring all of that to the page and it feels natural to write their trauma, be it intergenerational or immediate. It feels very natural or necessary to include all of that. And I think as writers, we need to be part psychologists as well. You know, I think we write because we are fascinated by people. It's like, why did they do that? What the hell is wrong with them? Where where did that come from? Why did they say that? Why are they being so weird? And so, you know, I think we probably as kids were always thinking this kind of thing. And as teenagers, always looking at people's motivations, etc. And so that kind of interest really brings itself to this kind of characterization. You can just see that you are a, you know, studier of human beings. You are an observer, but also a deep, deep thinker. And, and that comes through so much. What we have time for is one last thing that I want to discuss is, so on the podcast, we talk about writing descriptions because your readers need to have something come alive for them in their imagination. When we watch television or film, we see the set, we see how everybody looks. But when we're reading, we as the reader have to do the heavy lifting and we need to imagine everything. But it's not enough to just describe how something looks. It needs to be from the perspective of that character so that description reveals something about that character in terms of how they observe the world. And I'm going to read three paragraphs that I've taken out from different stories. Here we go. Her tears make me feel uncomfortable. I wipe at nothing on my jeans. Then I let my eyes look around Tala's living room. The walls bare, but her furniture nice. The legs on both of her couches look like big wooden claws, and the backs high like thrones, like kings and queens live in here. The furniture too big for the little room. Ain't no space left for a television or stand or plant or nothing. The parts of the carpet I can see, the parts that the furniture don't hide, are stained with old spills that don't turn black because they ain't been cleaned up right. Her living room don't feel homey to me. It's clean except for the stained carpet, but it don't feel like nobody home. Then there's another one. This is a description of a, of a person. This one chubby. She got brown hair and I know it's shedding soon as she walk in. Got strings of it all over her shirt and it don't look healthy at all. She holding her little notepad close to her chest like it got secrets about the world in it. When she sit down on the couch, the plastic I keep it covered with sound like it's screaming. 
She looked around the room until she land her eyes on me. Looked like she trying to place the dates on my old time furniture. And then here's another one. He brought a white man to my house that day. Short, stocky, something. His skin was about as pale as the off-white paint on my wall. And he was bald at the top, but had his hair swooped over like he wanted to hide it. I wanted to tell him his head was slick as a table, even with that hair swooped over, but I'd seen too many white, bald, swooped heads to let my tongue go like that. He didn't never open his wide rubber lips, not the whole time he was here, just stood there like some kind of little person bodyguard. Hawk told me I looked good, said he could see clean in my spirit, and I ain't apologized to him about leaving to be with myself, for never coming to get him when them white folks took him from me. I ain't tell him I was sorry for letting him go out into the world 11 years old and full of my lies. I ain't apologized about nothing. So, I mean, again, is this part of inhabiting that character so much that when you climb into the character, you look at a space and go, how the heck would they see it? Because I know that you as Latoya are going to see that space very different to how your unnamed character is seeing it. Yes, that's exactly it. Being inside of that character and taking notes as that character. That the first passage that you read from with Thala in Thala's apartment, I've actually, I was actually in that space as Nikki. And I am also like a, I love watching Nollywood, African cinema, different kind of cinema, international cinema as characters, because there's so much that they see that I don't see. And sometimes it's a lot more profound because of their histories, because of where they've been, because of what I'm trying to carry. I think that even though these characters are made up and and not real, they all have a spirit to them that is somehow transferred to me when I am trying to embody them and write them. And there is, it is very important to them that I see the world in the way that they see it. And I am able to describe that in honor of, of them and to people like them or who they who they are supposed to represent. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, an exercise you can do is just think of a friend of yours and try and see the world through their eyes. So for example, I don't care about clothes. I don't care about jewelry. I don't care about purses. I would not know one kind of purse from another kind of purse in terms of brand names. And there are certain friends that when I see them, if you held a gun to my head, Three days later and said, what were they wearing when you last saw them? I could not for the life of me recall because I don't pay attention to that. But I could tell you, you know, exactly what they said in a certain instance, because that's what I'm paying attention to. But when they see me, they will go, oh, that's a cute top or whatever. They get excited when I buy something new because it never happens. And they were like, oh, if I wear something and they were like, oh, you wore this to this thing. And this was I don't know, three years ago, I'm like, how the hell do you remember that? <laughs> but it's, it's a great way of having an exercise. And just think about people you know, what they pay attention to. Because some people always pay attention to the music in the background. Some people are foodies, so they really pay attention to, you know, the food you're serving or the cutlery you have or the flowers you have on the table as right. Right. And there's also another thing that I love doing, and that is transcribing conversations around me discreetly, but transcribing those conversations and kind of listening to what people, what, what people are aware of, like what's standing out to them sometimes in a grocery store. So once I was in a grocery store 
and a woman and her child, he had his hand on the buggy in front beside her. And he kept commenting on how dirty the floor was. He was like, why, why are we buying food? Look at these cracks. Look at that dirt. When was the last time they, and I was like, this is a very interesting kid. He, he could have, he couldn't have been any more than eight or nine, but he was very taken aback by that these people selling goods that other people would consume. And th the store kind of told the floor, told him something about like the hygiene. <laughs> so, so I thought that was interesting and I couldn't write it down because of course I was pushing a buggy. So I just recorded on my voice notes and got home and rolled it back and wrote that, wrote it down that way. So his mother was having a different conversation, but he kept going back to the same conversation. And I think those details are important because that's how we communicate a lot of times. Like we're having two different conversations. So that's another thing that you can do. Yeah, I love that. So one last thing. So this is a quote from the Dallas Morning News. We don't always find out what ultimately happens to these characters, but when they make their choices, we know they are doing what they need to do. It may not be the legal, sensible or ethical thing, but is the thing that lets them keep going somehow. This is how they endure in a perilous, unfair world where the past is, as William Faulkner once said, never dead. It's not even past. And I know that you have actually been compared to William Faulkner in terms of your writing as well. So can we just talk about these kind of endings? Because I know a lot of writers struggle with endings. They feel like everything needs to be wrapped up neatly. Everything needs to come together. And I say, you're writing a cozy murder mystery or you're writing Hercule Poirot or Agatha Christie. Yes, everything damn well better be tied up very neatly at the end. People want to know who did it, why they did it, where this person was at this time and why couldn't it have been this one. But let's talk about the kind of open-ended endings where you kind of pass the responsibility over to the reader for them to decide how the story ends. I really like that you said passing that responsibility. I think one of the first things I learned about story and ending in a workshop was that I don't need you to wrap this up for me. I don't need it to be beautiful. Could you just drop that character somewhere and leave us with him or her or them so that there will be a longing in, in the reader to know more, to want more, to think about that character, that's a staying story. When it's finished and you walk away from it, it's a complete thing. So it can be put away in your mind. But if it's not, it's complete. I complete the story, but I leave, I like to leave the characters in a place where they stay the reader wants to stay with them, maybe rub their backs, maybe come back every now and then and think about them because that's the story. That's the thing that you remember. Happy endings for me kind of string together and become one thing. We see so many stories with happy endings, but I've gotten a lot of people with the collection who have asked, have you chosen any of these characters to write a novel? about. And I think it is because of that. They feel incomplete and they feel not, not necessarily incomplete, but they were left with that character and they want to see more of him or her or them. And that's where I think readers should be to where they want to, they're not sick of that character or it's not over. They're always there. So there's always a possibility that you can see them again. Yeah. And, and what I love is how, whether, you know, I've speak to different book clubs about my own books and one reader will be like, oh, but I know they're going to live happily ever after with this person. And this is how their story is going to end. And the other readers like, 
that's not realistic at all. Of course, it ends badly. And I love that for each of them, the story ends differently. And I had my character in my first novel say, there are no happy endings. A story that has ended happily is just a story that has not ended yet. And some people find that incredibly bleak, but I'm like, bitch, that's life. That's where we are. (laughs) It is. It totally is. I love that. I love that. Well, Latoya, thank you so, so much. It's been such an absolute joy chatting with you. For our listeners, please go and get Hollow Child. It is absolutely phenomenal. We're linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it there, you're supporting an independent bookstore, the podcast, and Latoya. Latoya, we can't wait to see what you come up with next, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember... It just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.